Well, in 2003, Greg Easterbrook, he wrote a book which is titled The Progress Paradox, the subtitle of which goes like this, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And he describes in this book how over centuries we have become more affluent. We have better food, we have better health care, we have better education, we have better ways of communication, we have better climate control, we have better entertainment, we have better transportation. Everything is better. And yet, when people in America here are surveyed, they indicate that they are only, quote, slightly satisfied on this satisfaction scale. Slightly satisfied. Even though everything is better, even take last 50 years, right? So much has improved, yet we are only slightly satisfied. And so the author provides many explanations for this paradox. But friends, the fundamental problem is that this world and everything in it, no matter how good and how much better they may be, this world cannot ultimately satisfy. It cannot fill you to your capacity so you don't turn around and seek the next thrill, move from one thing to the next. Why? Because you are lacking something. What we really need and what each man is really looking for is a relationship with a living God. Only he can satisfy. King David, as we read in Psalm 61, he expressed it well when he says, my thirst, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in the dry and weary land where there is no water. That is the condition of every single sinner. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. We find ourselves here in the text in which we find the answer to our dissatisfaction. This is a very special passage, in fact. If you read all four Gospels, you will find only two miracles recorded in the Gospels. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that happened to him. And the other one is the feeding of 5,000. No other miracle is recorded by all four gospel writers. And this second miracle here, the feeding of 5,000, is the passage that is before us. And although... All four gospel writers, when they present this, they present it in a different chronological order. They present various details that others, you know, may exclude. The, even the length of the passage varies. But all four finish with this one statement or a sort of a variation of this one statement. And it is this, and they all ate and were satisfied. All four. Various details, various characters, but every single one finishes with, and they all ate and were satisfied. 
You know, looking at this text here, I believe that Matthew includes this passage in order to contrast with what came before. Remember, as we've been saying over the past number of studies, that Matthew is not concerned with chronological order. And so there's a question, why do you include this passage here? Why was Herod's feast included here as well. And, and I think when you put it all together and when you sort of zoom out and when you look at why it is here, I think Matthew wants us to see something, friends, against this dark, gruesome scenes of this bloodthirsty little King Herod, we are presented a portrait of a compassionate, kind, and giving King of Kings. That's why this passage follows what came before. This king of kings, he is more concerned not for his own welfare, but for the welfare of others, unlike the other king that is presented here right before. And I want us to see these various contrasts here as we study and uh, look at verses 13 through 21. I want us to begin with verse 11. As we read verse, uh, chapter 14, we'll begin with verse 11, we'll read through 21, and just as we get into verse 11, recall what we studied last week. Matthew writes, and his head, John the Baptist's head, was brought on the platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in the boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and two fish and looked up towards heaven. He blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. As we look at this passage here, I want us to just see this, um, this main thought that, that I believe Matthew wants us to, to see, and, and more importantly, the Lord, the author, the divine author of this gospel wants us to see that Jesus is a compassionate, resourceful, and all-satisfying giver. So we must receive him and give him to others. 
Jesus is a compassionate, resourceful, and all-satisfying giver. And since he alone is the giver, then we must receive him and we must receive from him. And we must give him then to others. As we look at this text, I want us to see a couple of portraits. Portraits of Jesus Christ and how they then contrast to what came before. Number one, I want us to see that Jesus alone is selflessly compassionate in verses 13 and 14. Jesus alone is selflessly compassionate. Then we will see that Jesus alone is divinely resourceful. Divinely resourceful. And finally, he is abundantly satisfying. Abundantly satisfying. Look with me at verse 13. As I mentioned already, I think Matthew... Matthew's intention in the first 21 verses here of this chapter is to make a few contrasts. Having presented King Herod in the first 12 verses, Matthew now turns to the real king, King Jesus Christ. And these two kings could not be any more different. The selfishly cruel Herod versus selflessly compassionate Jesus. Look what happens in verse 13. When Jesus heard what happened to John, he leaves, Matthew writes, the region over which Herod was the king. He goes into a remote place, into a secluded place to be by himself. And the question is why? Why why is Jesus retreating? Usually Jesus just moves forward. Why is he now retreating? And I, I think considering the news, considering what just happened to him, what the uh, disciples of John brought to Jesus, Jesus' cousin died. He didn't just die of natural causes. He was murdered. John is his cousin. John was his forerunner, as you know, earlier from Matthew. John is this faithful prophet who prepared the way for the Lord. John's death, no doubt, reminded Jesus of his own impending death. As we said last time, if you recall, there are many details about John's death that are very similar to how Jesus will die. And Jesus knows that he is going to die. In fact, this is something that he'll begin to indicate more and more in the coming chapters. Jesus wants to get away, to be able to to just be by himself, to pray to the Father, to perhaps grieve over John and just possibly begin to reflect more and more on his own suffering. He needs rest. And Luke tells us when he describes this same account in chapter 9 that Jesus took his disciples with him right now. And he went away by himself to Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee. You know, some have speculated, why did Jesus run away? Why is he retreating? Maybe Maybe he's afraid of what Herod might do to him now that John the Baptist is gone. He's sort of the next prophet in line, right, to be beheaded, to be executed. And and I think it's safe for us to rule this reason out because Jesus never does anything out of fear. We we don't see Jesus afraid of anything anywhere in, in, in the Gospels. He doesn't 
perform any miracles. He doesn't speak. He doesn't teach. He doesn't do anything out of fear. And you might recall in, in Luke chapter 4 when there was an episode where, where a large crowd gathers and, and, and they want to throw Jesus off the cliff, right? You think this is over for Jesus Christ. And, and, and we just read that Jesus simply and safely, quote, passed through their midst. They could not do anything to Jesus. If it wasn't his timing, he does not get killed. In fact, he says later on in John 18 or 10, 18, he says, um, I lay down my life, right, on my own initiative. No one tells me what to do. You can't force me to die ahead of time. I need to do the work. And when that work is complete, then I will enter Jerusalem and you will crucify me in Jerusalem. Jesus is not afraid. He's not running away for safety reasons. He's just withdrawing for, to be in solitude, to be in fellowship with his close friends and more importantly, with the Father. And this is in fact what will happen later on in verse 23, if you just skip our passage and go to verse 23, after all the crowds are sent away, after this episode here is done, then he goes, right, to the mountain by himself to pray. That was his intention here. But look with me as Matthew writes here, this is Jesus's intention. He wants to get away, but when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. The word spread quickly. They see Jesus getting in the boat, and, and so, you know, they see him going a certain direction, and, and maybe a small group gathers around, and they start walking on the shore. And then, you know, usually boats, they don't go out into the sea where you can't see them. They're sort of, you know, by the shore, close enough to where you can see where they're going. And so the people begin to gather. And so as they go from one town to the next, they begin to follow Jesus to the point that they, they beat him to it, right? Those who were following along on the shore, they sort of get to the destination before Jesus gets there. And we read, when he went ashore in verse 14, there were all kinds of people already there, Right? Think about this. Jesus takes the boat in order to get away from people, but people are determined to be with Jesus, even though, as we find out from other accounts like John, they want to be with Jesus for all the wrong reasons, with all the wrong motives. Yet, look what happens. Matthew here doesn't tell us anything about the crowd's motive. That is not his goal. He doesn't tell us that these people are seeking to be with Jesus out of selfish motive. No, Matthew is concerned with Jesus' heart towards the people rather than people's hearts towards Christ. That's Matthew's focus. He's only focused on Jesus. Notice verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, he felt compassion for them, he healed the sick. The emphasis is not on the crowds. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ. Jesus felt compassion. I mean, think about this. Put yourself in that place. And I'm sure you've had these moments where, you know, you were so tired. You were probably serving a lot. Maybe you just had a really rough day with kids and you're just waiting for 8 p.m. 
you're just waiting for 8 p.m. or 10 p.m., whatever your, your bedtime is for your children. Maybe it's 11 or 12. I don't know. But you're waiting for that time until you can lay them down and you can just sit down and rest. And then that one kid just does not go to sleep and you spend two hours just going back and forth and trying to, you know, make sure that, hey, can you just go to sleep because I need to be alone. You're tired. You're dealing with people, their problems, right? This is what Jesus is dealing with. You're looking forward to that quiet time. You get in the boat, you sail away, trying to get away from people, from the crowds, and yet you reach the destination, and guess what? They're there again. They're there again. Jesus here, friends, instead of pursuing what he desires, he humbly and he selflessly serves others. And look what we find here in verse 14. He felt compassion for them. He feels deeply, literally, he feels it in his gut. This this compassion here refers to sort of your, your feeling that you get when your stomach drops. Literally, it speaks of someone being moved right here in the gut. And it's interesting that when you read the Gospels, compassion is the emotion that's attributed most to Jesus. Compassion. We already studied this passage, but go back with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew records, and he says this, that Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without the shepherd. And church, I want you to take note of this, that God God is not some kind of impersonal force that's out there, that's indifferent to the things that people go through, that's indifferent to the things we go through. Friends, remember that Jesus is God and no other miracle will demonstrate this truth as this one here. Jesus is God. In fact, remember he told his disciples this, that if you see me, then you know the Father. You know exactly how the Father behaves and, how, and what he would feel towards people. Jesus is not cold. Jesus is not removed. He's not remote from the sufferings of mankind. He feels compassion. And here is the true king of kings on display in Matthew 14. Unlike this Herod, Jesus does not use his power for himself. Jesus uses his power for others. He doesn't seek his own. Jesus denies himself. He denies his own rest, his desire to be in a separate, secluded place, to be with the Father, or maybe to be with his close friends, just to maybe reflect on what happened to John and the significance of it. He says, well, it is not the time. Why? Because we have things to do. People are here and we must serve. Jesus denies himself in order to bless others. In need of strength. He strengthens others. This this word, he healed them. He sort of um, gave strength to the sick, to the weak. This is the first miracle that we 
encounter here in this passage. You know, we usually just go, jump straight into the feeding of the 5,000, but Matthew, before he gets there, he includes this other miracle here. He healed them. He is selflessly compassionate towards sinners, and he's not indifferent. He heals the sick. He is deeply moved by the physical suffering, the confusion, the spiritual wayward state of the people. Jesus felt physical pain. He he felt emotional pain of rejection himself. He felt the full measure of human temptation as the author of Hebrew records that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin and therefore Jesus knows what we are feeling. And here we find that he is emotionally moved and extends his compassion even to those who are self-seeking. This crowd, they're not seeking Jesus because they finally realized who he is. No, they know that he's a miracle worker. That's why you follow him. They know that he feeds. That's why you follow him. They know that Jesus heals the sick. That's why you bring the sick. Not to worship, to benefit primarily from Jesus. And yet Jesus does not reject them. He knows this crowd will turn around in just a few short months or a year and they will cry, crucify, crucify. What does he do? He feels compassion and he begins to heal. Friends, Jesus alone is selflessly compassionate, especially considering against this dark backdrop of King Herod and what he just did to John the Baptist. All others are selfishly cruel. And so Matthew moves along with his narrative, and as as we come to this second miracle in this passage, I want us to see another portrait of Christ, that Jesus alone is divinely resourceful. Not only is he selflessly compassionate, but he is divinely resourceful. We already saw one contrast, right, between this little King Herod and the King of Kings, Jesus, but I want you to see another contrast here. There are not only two kings, but there are also two feasts that are featured here. Two feasts. The first feast is the birthday party of Herod, and the second is the feeding of the 5,000 by Jesus. Two radically different feasts in radically different settings with contrasting outcomes. You know, when you, I don't know if you ever um, studied the makeup of a story, like what makes a good story? Maybe you're a, a, a novel writer here. I don't know of anyone here, but maybe you are, or maybe you're an aspiring, right? What, what makes a good story? And so you usually, when, when you study the story writing you know, techniques, they usually say, hey, you need four parts in any good story for it to be exciting, right? You just, first of all, you, you need this basic situation. That's what you open up. You just set the scene. You introduce the characters. You introduce what's going on. Just kind of invite people, your audience, into what is going on. That's the beginning of the story. Then you introduce a conflict. Without a conflict, no story will sell. You introduce a conflict in the story, right? Some kind of problem, and you start providing various solutions, right, to fix this problem, but none of the solution actually fixes the problem until you get to this climax. It's the highest point, right, of tension in the story. Like, everything fails, and now what are we going to do? And here comes the Savior. 
Here comes someone who proposes a solution for you, and so you then get to the final stage of resolution. You resolve the story, and everyone goes home, and, and the story ends. We see these four aspects here in this particular story. And it's interesting that Matthew, he focuses a lot of his time, in fact, most of his ink is spilled on dealing with the problem, dealing with this interaction between Jesus and disciples, Jesus with the disciples. He fixes the story or the problem, right? He finds a solution really quick. In fact, Matthew doesn't even focus on really the miracle, how it happened and and all that stuff. No, but he spends a lot of time on the problem. And so in verse 15, Matthew tells us, right, sort of sets the scene. He gives us the basic situation. He says, verse 15, when it was evening, that's it. And um, at that time, there were sort of two evenings. Uh, one is the late afternoon, which was also referred to evening, and then the actual evening is something that we would call an evening, and we'll get to the second evening later on in verse 23, Lord willing, next week. But so he says, here's kind of late afternoon after he's been healing all these um, people, these crowds. Uh, then he says, Sort of, okay, here is the conflict. The disciples realize what time it is. You know, sometimes you get cut off guard, right? You're doing things and you begin to enjoy it a lot. And then, and then you look at it, it's like, wow, it's past, past lunchtime, you know? Uh, two hours, three hours past lunchtime. And you didn't even eat. And so this is exactly what the disciples here realize. It's getting late, right? They're in a remote place, sort of desert place. People are getting hungry. The grocery stores are about to close. The crowd is large, as we find out in verse 21, that there are 5,000 men alone. And this crowd size is estimated to be between, you know, considering women and children, maybe 7 to 15. Some estimate maybe up to 20,000 people. That's a large crowd here. So what are we going to do? And so disciples then offer the solution. They come to Jesus with a great solution. It says now that, uh, look what he says in verse 15. This place is desolate. The hour is late. Send the crowds away. Send them away. That's their solution. Right now that many of them got healed, they're feeling a lot better. They already got the miracle, right? It's time for people to go. Tell them to go home. Like, it's a command here. In verse 15, the disciples command Jesus to send the crowds away. Maybe the disciples themselves are hungry. They are starting to feel it a little bit, and they're like, yeah, send them away so that we can go and get some food. And now we get to this tension. Jesus does not agree with the disciples' plan. And Matthew makes it obvious when he writes in verse 16, but Jesus said, but Jesus said, there's a contrast. Here's the disciples' plan, but Jesus said, whoa, whoa, hold up. They do not need to go away. This phrase is only found in Matthew. They do not need to go away. This is not how we're going to solve this problem, friends. And so we get to this climax. Jesus then tells them this. You give them something to eat. Don't send them away empty-handed and hungry. You give them something to eat. I mean, talk about tension. Don't send, give. Now, usually at this time, you might hear 
various applications to this passage, even to this command, right? You may hear something like, you're responsible to feed the hungry and clothe the poor. Or you may hear something like, no matter what little you might have, even if it's, you know, five loaves and two little fish, it's okay, just, just bring something, give it all to Jesus, and Jesus will multiply, and he will make something great out of nothing, And church, even though we should feed the poor or clothe the poor, right? Feed the hungry. We need to ask, is this the point that Matthew intends to teach the readers? Or more importantly, we need to ask, is this what Jesus wants to teach his disciples here when he says, you give them something to eat? Friends, the emphasis on this passage is, on Jesus, not the disciples. Jesus is saying, yes, the people are hungry, but what are you going to do about it? He's challenging the disciples to think, what are you going to do about it? And the simple answer here is absolutely nothing. We can't do anything to fix this problem. This task is impossible for the disciples. That's why in verse 17, In verse 17, they say to Jesus, we have only five loaves and two fish. And the original, when you read this, it literally says this, we have nothing here except for five loaves and two fish. We have nothing to offer. Nothing for the crowd. Maybe a little meal that will feed one person, not even two. We're not talking about Lots of bread. We're not talking about a couple, you know, tuna fish that's worth a couple hundred pounds. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about two small fish, five little pancakes about this size, small barley loaves, probably found in a lunch pack of some kid. And Jesus says, you feed them. But Jesus, we have nothing. We can't solve this problem. We have no resources. This is what it means. It's not like, well, we have something. Let's offer it. No, this is meant to say we have nothing to emphasize insignificance. And that's the lesson here, brothers and sisters. This passage is not meant to teach us about us but to teach us that he alone has necessary resources. Friends, we are not to walk away from this text knowing what we can do, but we are to walk away from this text knowing about what Jesus alone can do, not us. And if there's anything that we learn about ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ is that we have nothing in ourselves to offer to this world. Nothing. We are totally dependent on Christ, for he alone is divinely resourceful. We are not sufficient, we are not adequate, something that Paul will later on emphasize again and again, as in the case of 2 Corinthians 3.5. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Friends, Jesus alone is sufficient, and he makes us sufficient. We already look at, looked at uh, Matthew, right? Matthew 9.36, where Jesus has compassion on the people. And Matthew says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And this is, I think, meant for us to recall an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel 34, a messianic prophecy that says this, God says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. This is the emphasis. Only Jesus can feed them. That's the point. With this miracle, Jesus is going to do what only God can do. In fact, think about the setting here. We are told that disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, we are in a desolate place. This desolate place is, is really the word for we are in the desert. We are in the desert. And, and so you see crowds, you know, 10, 20,000 people in the desert. And, and it might bring to mind how God miraculously provided manna for Israel in the wilderness, as recorded in Exodus 16. And now Jesus, the true shepherd, is on the scene and he himself feeds his people. Friends, divinity here is on display. Jesus is God with us. He is the Messiah. And so we get to the resolution in verse 18. And he said, bring them to me. What you have, bring them to me. And Jesus takes control of the situation. He, he is going to take something so insignificant and put his divine abundance on display. And once again, we see, just as we saw the emphasis on Jesus in verse 14, look at verse 19. Matthew, once again, just emphasizes what Jesus does. He orders the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up. He blessed. He broke. He gave. It's all about Jesus. It's interesting here that Matthew says that Jesus ordered the people to sit down on the grass. And the word that he uses here is used just a few times in the Gospels. And uh, it's always used, except for one time, uh, in the context of reclining at the table. Not just sitting down, but reclining at the table to have fellowship with someone. And so we already looked at one reference, one use of this term here in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, where Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table, that's the same exact word, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is a promise of the messianic banquet as recorded in Isaiah 25. This is a feast with Jesus which will indeed happen. And perhaps here, Matthew paints for us an allusion to this coming banquet. Here is the king of kings, and he invites people to sit down because he is about to feed them. They're about to enjoy a feast. And so we read here in verse 19 that Jesus takes something very small, something insignificant, and with his, his divine power, he transforms it into great abundance. And so many people have spent so much time speculating how it happened. I mean, how do you multiply molecules? How do they come in? And how, does this bread just all of a sudden start multiplying in front of the crowds? How did this happen? And, and Matthew spends no time describing on the actual miracle. We don't know. There's no indication 
in the text. We are only told what Jesus did because the whole spotlight is on Jesus Christ. He takes, he took. And, and here in Nasby, kind of an unfortunate maybe translation, he blessed the food. But literally, it just really means he gave thanks. He gave thanks. And he broke and he gave. And I was just sitting and thinking, maybe Jesus takes this bread and, and he breaks it and, and he starts breaking piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And it just doesn't exhaust. Like that little pancake that he had, he just keeps breaking it off more and more and more and more. And Phil's basking. He's like, okay, disciples, start, start, start passing them out. Jesus continues to give, 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 give. How? Why? Because he is the giver. The, the, this miracle is so simple, but it is, it is so powerful. And friends, what a feast it must have been. What a feast it must have been. Unlike the earlier feast, Jesus is willing to more than feed our needs, to more than meet our needs. Think about this. He does not throw a party here for self-gratification. He invites people to recline with him in order to bless them with himself. What a contrast between the other king and Jesus. Come in. Sit down. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you what you desperately need. And this will only point to a greater need. Notice Matthew's emphasis here on the giver. Like this word give is repeated, verse 16. And Jesus said, you give them, give them, offer them something. And they're like, we have nothing to give them. And Jesus says, well, you give me what you have. And then Jesus gave to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the crowd. The disciples only give to the people what they receive. There's only really one giver here and many distributors. One giver and many distributors. God gives from his abundance to sinners. And sinners, when they are satisfied with what God gives, they give only that which has been given to them. He alone is selflessly compassionate. Christ alone is divinely resourceful. We are just mere distributors. He is the only giver. We are called to receive him and distribute him to others. Friends, that's really our task here right now. Distribute Christ. Preach Christ. We don't need to create something new. We don't need to create another recipe. Something more appealing. Something more, I don't know, seemingly delicious. Sinners don't need gimmicks. Think about back to your salvation. What did you need when you got saved? When you were perishing in your sins, did you need a how-to guide? You didn't need a 12-step program. What you needed was a compassionate Savior, right? That's what we needed. You needed Christ. 
because he alone is abundantly satisfying. Jesus alone is selfless, selflessly compassionate. He is divinely resourceful. And finally, our last point we see here in verse 20 is he is abundantly satisfying. Have you ever been in a situation where you were hoping just to sort of get by, just to meet the requirements? Perhaps you're, you're taking the test and you know the passing grade is like 69 and you're studying to get 70 because that's all you're good for. Or maybe you're just looking to meet a deadline or some kind of you know, milestone at work. I just need to get the bare minimum. If I can get that, that's great. And sometimes, oftentimes, we, we sort of operate, right, just to do enough. And Jesus doesn't feel this way with this miracle. It's amazing. Somebody may look at this and like, well, what a waste. What a waste. Twelve extra baskets full of food. What are you going to do with it? Feed the poor. What are you going to do with it? Jesus makes his divine power on display in order to show crowds that he is more than enough to meet their need. Matthew tells us in verse 20 that they ate and circle underline this, whatever you have to do, and they were satisfied. They were satisfied. This is the resolution that Matthew sort of rushed to get to. I mean, think about this. Jesus could have performed another miracle. Let's say that everybody's stomach were growling, all 20,000, so that you would even hear this, you know, audible roar, and Jesus would just stretch his hand. It's like hunger, go away. And everybody will be like, oh, I don't feel hungry anymore. That's a miracle. That would have been a miracle. But Jesus doesn't choose to do that. He chooses rather to go through all of this in order to teach his disciple a lesson and get this, to satisfy people. Not just to remove hunger pains, but to satisfy people, to feed them and to do it well. This word satisfy means that you are just filled to the brim. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. And friends, here too we come to another contrast. This contrast is of satisfaction. One form of satisfaction comes when Herod desires to take his brother's wife or when he is pleased with his stepdaughter's dancing and offers her whatever she might ask. Verse 17, that's satisfaction. But this is empty satisfaction. In fact, this is no satisfaction at all. You are never filled your true desires are never met because you end up going through murder. When you try to satisfy yourself with entertainment, that satisfaction will wither and you find yourself, you will find yourself looking for something else, some kind of new drug, something. That one is not strong enough. I need something else. C.S. Lewis observed in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And friends, yes, we were. We were made for eternal world, and only someone who is from another world can give us what we truly need. 
can satisfy us. That's why there's another form of satisfaction. When, when John tells the same story, he, he adds a, a lengthy dialogue to follow up this miracle. And in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Friends, this is the ultimate satisfaction because the giver is the gift. The giver himself is the gift. Only Jesus can satisfy, and he does not satisfy by giving us something he gives of himself. Himself. What's the significance of 12 baskets, you might ask? Well, the number 12 is a common number that Matthew, you know, employs all over his gospel and the New Testament in other places. And we don't want to allegorize these numbers as we don't want to do much with the five loaves and two fish. I mean, you'll be surprised to hear all the interpretations. But number 12 Uh, Matthew mentions 12 disciples, he mentions 12 tribes, he mentions 12 thrones. And if there's any indication here, then the idea might be that there was enough left over from this feeding to not only satisfy 15,000 people, but the entire nation of Israel. Jesus came not only to satisfy a thousand, but to satisfy everybody who will come and feast on him. As Messiah, he is fully capable to meet all the need. And as we read the rest, right, as we begin from the Old Testament into the New, we find out that this Messiah not only feeds his own people, the Jews, but we, we, the Gentiles, benefit from Christ. We are included. Jesus alone abundantly Satisfied, such as the portrait of Jesus Christ. He alone is a compassionate, resourceful, and all-satisfying giver. We, like the 12 disciples, we have nothing here to offer. How do we respond? Well, we respond by receiving him and giving him to others. Right? We, we must first taste and see that the Lord is good ourselves believe in Jesus Christ find a solution in Christ Jesus there's a, a new song that city of light recently wrote and it goes something like this Jesus said that if i thirst i should come to him no one else can satisfy i should come to him Jesus said if i am weak i should come to him no one else can be my strength i should come to him For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. That's what this is all about. Where do you get your satisfaction? Are you thankful that Jesus satisfies you? Or are you looking for some some other place, some other source? And if you are thankful, church, and here's the challenge for us, right? Not only to believe and grasp Take hold of Christ, but as we hold Christ, as we believe in Jesus Christ, what are you offering to others? Who are you offering to others? Jesus gives of himself, and he tells his disciples to give what he gives to the rest of the people. 
What else can we offer to this broken, fallen world other than the only one who can restore, transform, and fully satisfy? I hope you are encouraged by this truth here found in this passage, and you are excited to not only again go back to the gospel, renew your mind in this truth, but also to be encouraged to go out, right? Continue. You have many people who you hang out with at home, beginning with children, perhaps your spouses who are unbelievers, right? And everywhere else, your work to offer Christ, for he alone can satisfy. Father, we thank you for this truth of the gospel. We thank you that we know Jesus Christ, not because we are better than the rest, but because we are graced. You, you graciously save us. You open up our eyes to taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, may many more, even in our church right now, people sitting in this room who, who maybe are still running after, like Herod, the fleeting satisfaction. And they're getting deeper and deeper. And I pray, Father, that you would rescue them and that you would turn their gaze onto Jesus Christ, who alone is the Savior of the world. Bless us to know him and to make him known. Amen.